This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. This episode is brought to you by Praxis, discoverpraxis.com. Derek McGill, who was interviewed on an episode from season one, dropped out of the University of Michigan. He went from the dean's list to leaving school. Why? Because he was bored. Not because it was too hard for him or he wasn't good enough for an elite school. It just wasn't good enough for him. It wasn't bringing him what he wanted. It wasn't worth it. The prestige and the pleasure of others that he was there, not a good enough reward considering the life that he wanted to build. He quit. He joined Praxis. He's a digital marketing guru, all self-taught. After being in the program, we liked his work so much, we hired him on as our marketing director. Derek is one of many examples of young people today who are realizing the world is changing. It's changing fast. There's more opportunity than ever to be your own signal, to be your own credential, to create things and demonstrate your value creation potential through what you've done in tangible ways. Build a website, build an online presence, get work experience. Don't worry. It sounds overwhelming, but you get all of that in the year-long Praxis program. It's not easy, but no great adventure is. Discoverpraxis.com slash apply. You can join Derek and many others in building the education revolution, starting with your own life. All right, today I have joining me for a second time, the great Thaddeus Russell. Thaddeus is the author of uh, among other books, his most popular, or most recent book is Renegade History of the United States. He was on a previous episode of the podcast, and Thaddeus is launching something pretty awesome called Renegade University. So Thaddeus, welcome, and tell us about Renegade University. Thanks. Um, well, it is, uh, it's forming right now. Uh, it hasn't formally launched yet. I am pulling together some ideas, uh, doing some market research, uh, putting out the word and seeing what the response is. And so far, it's been pretty encouraging. And the basic idea is for you to keep doing what you love, which is teaching on history and your sort of really unique uh, history focusing on the, the, the renegades, characters that often get um, overlooked and, and condemned in traditional histories. And continuing to do that, but in a way that is not only for those fortunate enough uh, or unfortunate enough, depends on how you look at it, to to pay tuition and attend, uh, you know, a specific college where you happen to be teaching and get your class registered. But anyone, anywhere, whether or not they're a part of the the academic structure. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to do a lot of things in the university, you know, and I'm not even sure exactly how much, but um, you know, quite a bit of it will be based on material in my book. Um, I'm going to offer a set of lectures uh, based on the book, but with material that's not in the book as well. Um, and then also lectures and seminars uh, based on material in my forthcoming book, which is on uh, American foreign policy and American popular culture abroad over the last 120 or so years. Mm. Um, and that's actually gotten a very, very big response. In fact, that's in the market research has shown that that's the most popular topic. Um, and then also... Uh, I'm very excited about doing a series of courses on the history of political philosophy, which I actually taught. That was actually the first thing I taught in graduate school at Columbia 
as part of their famous Introduction to Contemporary Civilization course, which is required for all sophomores at Columbia. It's a, it's a broad survey from Plato to the present, and I loved teaching it, and you know, it's just sort of the bedrock of any liberal arts education, um, which is sort of being lost now. And it's not, you know, of course I don't have a conservative view of it. I mean, I, I don't, I, it's, it's sort of how you talk about Plato and Aristotle. It's not, you know, that we need to talk about these great men. Um, so that's also gotten a big response. People have been very enthusiastic about that, and I can't wait to teach that as well. Um, and it's going to be a combination of online lectures, which you can download in either audio or video format, online interactive seminars, uh, and then in-person seminars, just regular classes uh, in several cities. I've gotten enough response that I can launch seminars in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, New York City, Chicago, and Austin, Texas. Wow. Um, and then probably other cities, you know, the more more response I get. But those those cities seem clear clearly to have enough people in them who want to do this. Um, yeah, and in terms of you know <laughs> admissions and tuition, um, the admission policy is I'm, I will admit anyone who is interested in big ideas <laughs> uh, and in, and especially interested in being challenged by ideas that are new to them. Um, and then tuition will be, you know, <laughs> I don't know exactly what it will be, but I know this, it will be a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of, of regular tuition at regular colleges. Um, that, you, you, you won't know, need to be paying it off for 30 years? No. <laughs> uh, you know, I can say this. I mean, I'd say that, you know, I don't know, 80 to 90% of Americans could afford at least one class of mine. Yeah. Um, so without, without any major sacrifice economically. Um, so, I mean, we're talking, in other words, we're talking about hundreds of dollars rather than many, many thousands of dollars. So, or less actually. But, um, so I'm hoping to launch, begin offering courses in late spring, um, maybe early summer, right after I'm, I'm finishing this book I told you about on, um, sort of globe, the global history of the United States. Uh, I'm hoping to finish the manuscript by March or April. And then also I'm finishing teaching at a regular college at Occidental College at the same time. So after that, I'll be pretty free. And I want to devote, you know, almost all of my energy to Renegade U. So, you know, I was thinking about this, about you launching this, and there's so many things that are cool about it. But one thing that, that came to mind was, this idea of the entrepreneur as a renegade. So you're kind of you're kind of doing this mm. entrepreneurial venture here. Um, you're launching out on your own to do this university thing, and and you know you're not sure exactly where it's going to go yet or or what it's going to become. But you're you're directly you know selling your services, your products in a new way. Um, and you know we think about your book talks so much about renegades versus the the sort of great men throughout history that are praised for their their sort of puritan virtues and it, i think in business when we think of business success many people think of those puritan virtues you know being the the leaders to business success and maybe in the corporate world that may be true but it's so often entrepreneurs tend to have many more of those renegade characteristics and and in many ways, they're 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 very much a part of that class you talk about, that group of people <laughs> who they're not the ones giving speeches and getting all the credit for social change and saying nice things. They're just making stuff to sell to people to make their lives better. And by doing so, kind of undermining the status quo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I mean, most of the renegades in my book are were entrepreneurs. Um, and so, you know, 
um, saloon owners in colonial America, right? Entrepreneurs, brothel owners, you know, <laughs> entrepreneurs. Most prostitutes were entrepreneurs. You know, all the prostitutes in the West were entrepreneurs. You know, they they found they saw there was an opportunity in these Western boom towns, and they moved from the East to the West to make a lot of money, and they did, um, and gained a lot of power and a lot of sort of feminist freedoms and equality through that. Um, you know, the mafia, uh, bootlegging in the 1920s during Prohibition, the founding of Hollywood, which, you know, was very entrepreneurial and semi-criminal, um, the founding of Las Vegas, same thing, gay bars, you know, from the first gay bars in the 1930s through the 1970s when they were the only place gay men and women could go, you know, and, and, and congregate safely. Uh, those were semi-criminal, renegade, and totally entrepreneurial. Um, so, you know, over and over again, you'll see that, you're right, I mean, it's kind of, that entrepreneurs generally have been um, actually on the outsides of, outside of respectable society, and that's definitely underappreciated in the history of business. You know, yeah. in fact, I think... Well, especially, especially if you go like, you know, an MBA course or something and, and maybe you'll learn some, some good stuff about business plans and whatever, but I think there's an underemphasis. And again, if you want to go work for a large fortune 500, then sort of following right. all these rules and doing those things, um, may be your, your ticket. Uh, but the big breakthroughs are usually dudes who are like uh, men or women who are, mm -hmm. they're tripping on shrooms and <laughs> getting inspiration <laughs> and kind of doing crazy stuff, you know? Sure. When yeah, that, to, to, I was actually go ahead. I was just gonna say, like, for a minute, right after Renegade, um, I was kicking around ideas for my next book with my agent, and that was one of my very first ideas was to do a history of Renegade business, um, hmm. and which I, I might do someday. But you know, it's it's really an undertold story. Well, today, do you think do you think that is expressed most frequently now? That sort of Renegade uh, entrepreneurship or business efforts in like the dark web and that kind of stuff? Or, or where do you see it? Um, you know, where do you see it predominantly? Yeah, I mean, certainly the Silk Roads of the world um, is one place. Um, the dark web generally, for sure. Uh, by the way, I did a really amazing interview with, I don't know if you know this, with Alex Winter, who uh, made the documentary about well, uh, so I Silk looked Road, for yeah. it and it said the video was gone. What? I on couldn't reason? find it. I went on reason and the video was, it said this video no longer exists. So I'm going to have to do really? some more digging. Yeah. I wonder if that's a legal thing. That's what uh, I wondered. I didn't hear about it. No one told me about it. And that, then a drone flew over my house like three minutes later. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I don't know. But anyway, I mean, yeah, this is kind of tangent, but tangential, but like he's by far the smartest person I've ever encountered in Hollywood. Like he's head and which isn't saying a whole lot, but he's head and shoulders <laughs> above all the other Hollywood people I've encountered politically. Super sophisticated, smart guy. But anyway, um, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, internet is full of, of sort of um, entrepreneurs who are either outside respectable society or on the fringes of it. Um, I, you know, here's where you're going to find renegade entrepreneurs, though, um, in the ghettos. Hmm. I think I think in poor neighborhoods in the United States and across the world, I think those places are full of people who are operating businesses outside the law. Hmm. Uh, well, we know they are actually. It just I think it's but it's understudied. You know, you'll find barbershops and hairdressers and 
uh, shade tree mechanics, they're called, um, hmm. guys who work on cars under the shade of a tree, you know, without a license, um, people selling all sorts of products, you know, the, you know, the documentary 12 o'clock boys about the Baltimore, uh, dirt bike, uh, riders. No, I've not seen it. Oh, it's a great, great. Documentary. All right. I added it to my list. Highly, highly recommended. Yeah. 12 o'clock boys. It's a, there's a subculture in Baltimore among sort of black youth. Uh, they ride these dirt bikes through the streets and they kind of challenge the cops and very sort of rebellious, uh, free-spirited, independent-minded people. Um, and they they get all their their dirt bikes from these you know underground dealers um, who aren't selling drugs. They're selling dirt bikes, but they're still illegal. So that, I, I think that's just all over the place, you know, and especially the, the lower you go on the socio, socioeconomic scale, the more you're going to find of that. And that's true in history, too. I mean, if you look at my book, it's clear that that's the case, right? The, the lower you go, the more entrepreneurial, extra legal activity you will see. Yeah. And I always wonder, I mean, you even see that in, you know, look at, you see it in schools where the kids, <laughs> the kids who are, you know, running things like uh, schemes where people pay them to have somebody write a paper and all these, <laughs> they're, they're often, right. or sneaking in. I was talking to a friend actually out there in Hollywood and his son had this little side hustle going where he would, they would stop at McDonald's on the way and buy like 20 egg McMuffins and sneak them mm. in in a gym bag and sell them in the school because the school had like banned all unhealthy food and you couldn't mm. bring in outside snacks or something like this. And they were making all kinds of money and uh, they got shut down. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, what I wonder is how how hard is it for someone who who gains that kind of entrepreneurial skill and is doing something, you know, sort of in the black market or in the gray market underground how how possible is it for those people to sort of cross over into the above ground market? I mean, it seems like it'd be tremendously difficult if you wanted to do something, um, just the amount of capital required and things like legal representation, because by the time you get to a certain level of wealth, you start to attract attention. And if you're doing things illegally, uh, it's not going to be the kind of attention that you want. But to, to try to transition into doing it legally requires a lot of capital. It just feels like there's a lot of entrepreneurial energy probably trapped in black yeah. markets. Yeah. I mean, so I can speak to, you know, the historical record on this and what, what I found, and this is kind of one of the main stories in renegade history, is that it's not so much that the black market entrepreneurs became respectable, although some did or became legitimate or legal, it's that the culture changed mm. in accordance to them, right? So that the culture ended up adopting these businesses, markets, products, whatever they were, uh, as legitimate and legal eventually, mm. right? And then it became perfectly legal and legitimate to, for instance, own a gay bar, right? Mm. Uh, it became perfectly legitimate and legal to sell liquor, you know, after 1933, uh, largely really because of the mafia's subversion of prohibition. Mm -hmm. um, um, same with saloons, same with, you know, brothels for a time. It's uh, probably, I mean, that's a large part of what's happening with, in the world of uh, the drug war with, with marijuana. It's oh, sort of, you just can't stop right. it. <laughs> so the government's like, we might as well tax it, you know? My God, I mean, just the history of weed, you know, I mean, it's just, there you go. I mean, we, we have come so far in just the last 10 years, just 10 years ago, if you had said, you know, how, I don't even know how many states it's now semi-legal or legal, right? I mean, if you had said that to anyone 10 years ago, they would have thought you were insane. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's an amazing transformation that, that happens over and over again.
So I want to, I want to talk a little bit about your, um, I want to get more into universities and, and renegade university and things like yeah. that, but, but I want to talk about your new book first. The, hmm. do you have a working title for it? Yeah, it's called blood and freedom, uh, a renegade history of America abroad. Okay. And so you said it's about, uh, American foreign interventionism, I, I assume, uh, in sort of the more policy realm, but also the pop culture, uh, parallel. What, give me, give me the thesis and, um, what are some of the themes? Yeah. So, uh, one thesis is basically the blowback thesis applied to, you know, more than a century of American foreign policy. So I look at a series of interventions, military interventions, uh, beginning with the Spanish American war, um, and show that, you know, blowback occurred, you know, fairly consistently, um, in all sorts of, all sorts of ways, not just in direct attacks on the United States, but in the, um, creation or, or fomenting of anti-American sentiment in various, various. So, so the, the basic blowback concept is every time, uh, American troops get involved in some conflict, we create, we, we basically endanger, uh, Americans further by creating enemies of, of, uh, America. Is that fair? Right. Okay. We, we create anti-Americanism. Yeah. Yep. Right. Um, and so, but also simultaneously all along, um, that time you have, I shouldn't say we, by the way, I, yeah, I, no, I don't, I don't want to be any part of this. <laughs> that's not a libertarian word. <laughs> I gave a little talk about that in New Hampshire a few years ago. In fact, I, I said, I said, I love, one of the things I love about libertarians is they never say we <laughs> states except for Isaac Morehouse. Um, <laughs> oh. No, it's okay. I know you're good. Um, no, and then at the same same time, you have this other thing that's uh, contradictory, which is wonderful, which is that you know American popular culture is spreading all over the globe at, a, at the exact same time the U.S. military is spreading. So you know, beginning in the Philippines after the Spanish American War with the occupation of the Philippines, you have uh, you have the spread of jazz in the Philippines, and the Filipinos become sort of the greatest jazz musicians in the in in that hemisphere, and they spread jazz and vaudeville uh, across Asia. And, you know, create sort of this renegade culture in those countries, you know, that's semi-American, but it's really a hybrid culture because they infuse it with, you know, native cultures as well. So it's not like they're just taking American jazz and copying it. You'll see, you'll hear Filipino influences and then later Japanese influences and Chinese influences in the music as well. And they create a new musical form. And the important point politically here is that the music is uniformly hated by the political regimes. Hmm. Um, so you have the Filipino government, the Japanese government, the Chinese government, and this was, it didn't matter if it was nationalist or, or communist, um, they all hated it because it was um, the music of freedom. It was the music of pleasure, individual freedom, sex, all the things that a nation state uh, abhors. So um, you'll find this, this, this tension, or really it's a civil war going on that I've that I show in, in the United States through renegade history in these other countries as well. That's sort of initiated by American pop culture. Um, so you have blowback, which really works against, I argue the interests of Amer ordinary Americans. Yeah. Um, but at the same time you have this renegade culture spreading, which works in our favor because people tend to be more sympathetic to America. And it also, it tends to sub subvert these authoritarian regimes that we all hate. Are there, um, I don't know if you've, you've sort of come this recent, but do you look at all at the more, either the first Gulf war or the second or, uh, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, you look at those areas at all, or is this a little bit yeah. earlier? No, I, 
the project actually started with an examination of the Middle East in the last 50 years and and on the you know with this very with this very question and you know I, I found it just it this the stuff that's going on in the Middle East in the last several decades is just astonishing I mean what what every, is the general is there like a is there like an average person let's say in Iraq who's not a part of any sort of military body what what would their opinion be if there if there is such data on this of America or Americans in general? Um, so they tend to dislike the military. They tend to dislike the government and they tend to love Britney Spears. So that, so that distinction is there. They recognize that there's a culture and a people that are separate from the policy and the, and the armies. Well, I mean, it's, you know, I don't know how they would articulate it. Yeah. But we know that's true. I mean, from, not just from polls, but from sort of various political expressions. Right. And then most importantly, from how they vote with their wallets. Right. Right. So, so they love uh, Britney Spears, huh? Oh my God. So you go. So to me, the story of the Middle East um, is the satellite dish. You know, if you go to, I think, pretty much any city in any Middle Eastern, in any Middle Eastern country, and look at the, you know, they have these big apartment buildings in most of those cities, and you'll see in every case that they're covered in satellite dishes. And people are just streaming in Western stuff all day and all night. And then at the same time, you know, Islamic fundamentalists and nationalists both are denouncing it and rip it, sending the police out to rip down those satellite dishes. And then, you know, a few days later, they spring back up. This has been the history of Iran in particular. In the last several years, um, you just have these apartment buildings covered with satellite dishes and everyone knows that everyone is watching Western and American TV and porn and all the rest of it. And the government has sent in the national police many, many times on a regular basis to rip down those satellite dishes and they come right back up. So, um, and we have lots of, so, so you could, you could drop bombs through the air and hope to, to hit whoever, you know, the U S deems the bad guys are and likely hit many other people and cause a lot of, uh, understandable hatred and, and fear. Or instead of dropping bombs through the air, you just stream, you know, MTV through the air and uh, let it foment a little revolution among the <laughs> among yeah. the people there, you know. Well, between... well, you just don't. No, my point is, you don't have to do anything. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, exactly. You don't. You don't have to do it as a concerted effort. You just let the self interest of the market uh, drive people to to you know try to sell things. A lot of people have misunderstood my thesis, which I've I've written about this a couple times uh, in journalistic form, and a lot of people have misunderstood the thesis and they said, oh well, so the U.S. government should be sending Britney Spears to the Middle East. I said, no, they don't need to do a damn thing. She's yeah. she's already going there, you know. I mean, um, so yeah, and then you just but then you see these amazing fatwas issued by you know Islamic clerics in every country in the Middle East, you know, over the last ten or twenty years. I mean denouncing everything from Britney Spears to Mickey Mouse to t-shirts to jeans to to navel piercings to tattoos. And to I think that's an important people. well that's an important thing for for Americans to to realize. It's it's easy I think if you hear one of those fatwas to be like okay, well all the people that live in that country, they all they all think that stuff is terrible. But the reason that someone would issue something like that is because they feel threatened by it because yeah. so many people there in that country, you know, do do value it and and are consuming it. And that's a that's a good sign. That's a sign that American culture is uh, in demand. Yeah. I mean, the the clerics are not stupid. <laughs> they know, you know, they they know what is a threat to their power. I mean, so Iran, it's really, really clearly happening. If you, I mean, any people should just 
just search around. You can just Google, you know, just Google Iran or Tehran and like any sort of pop cultural form, form. you know, you can Google rock and roll, hip hop. It's, it's all huge there. And the youth of Iran in particular are just totally uninterested, apparently, in Islam and very interested in clothes and fashion and rock and roll and and hip hop and all the and metal is huge there. Heavy metal is huge there. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just happening. It's just happening. I mean, it's it's and it's the the days of Islamic fundamentalism are numbered. And it's because of that, not because of the U.S. military. So how close are you to completing the book? Uh, a couple months. Okay. And then, and then it goes to the publisher for, a, an unknown amount of time or a couple months till publication. Depends on which season they want to publish it in. So okay. it will be either, well, at this point it's probably going to be, I don't know. It's really up to them. I, yeah. Last I heard it might be published in the spring of next year. Okay. It's always been kind of a, kind of a black box to me. Like what happens once a publisher gets a book, you know, like what are they doing that takes yeah. so long? Oh, uh, well for this, I mean for commercial, well, so for academic press, is this commercial press or academic? It's, Gro- it's Grove Atlantic. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Academic presses take forever and ever because they need to get peer reviews. Um, and they're just, and they're underfunded and they're understaffed. And so they just take forever and ever, but no commercial presses can publish a book in weeks you know, if they want to, um, it may not be good, but they can very quickly because they have the resources to do it. Um, usually it depends on, as I said, when they want to publish it, you know, in terms of when it will sell the most. So, so let's talk a little about, uh, higher education universities. Um, so obviously you have, you have felt like you are not uh, getting everything you want out of just being within the traditional Academy and, and you've been, you know, to have motivated enough to launch Renegade University, but what what is what is wrong with the modern university? <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> you tell me. You're the expert. Um, well, from, from someone who's Where there, you, you know, you've you've been in there. Yeah. You've been a part of it. Yeah, you know. So I I listened to your your talk on this. Um, you know, and you had a great list of reasons. I didn't disagree with anything. You know, um, I had. And it sort of made me think more carefully about my own my own problems with it. Um, So I've been a student or a teacher in modern American universities and colleges since 1984 (laughs) with no break, really. Um, So and I I loved going to college. I went to Antioch College, which is this ultra left, ultra hippie, crazy little underfunded, nutty place in Southwest Ohio. Um, I loved it, but I was always aware that the teaching generally, with a couple of exceptions, was terrible. (laughs) Um, That the academic rigor was not what I wanted it to be. Um, But I loved being there. You know, I think what I loved most was the voluntary community aspect of it. I loved that I was part of this voluntary community. We all hung out together. We all lived together, ate together. I mean, that would get tired after a while, but you know, it was really great for me when I was 19, 20, 21. I mean, I think I was sort of a lonely, isolated guy as a teenager, um, as many teenagers are. And I think that was part of the appeal. 
uh, I had sex for the first time. And that's really, you know, <laughs> really, really <laughs> important. I mean, seriously, I think the sex life in college for many people is, is underappreciated how important that is. Um, but, you know, I kind of just went into the world and I, I, for the first time, and then more importantly for me, um, well, I don't know if it's more importantly, but it was certainly also important. Um, for the first time, I thought I was smart. Uh, I, I became fairly convinced that I was actually smart and that I had something to say and that I should really be an intellectual. You know, I started to read these books and I could actually sort of have an analysis of them and speak somewhat articulately about them. And, and I realized this was my home, you know, that the, the intellectual world was my home. Um, so, and I had, I had one great teacher, um, at Antioch and that was crucial, you know? So there, there's always, there's always one or two, I think everyone's had one or two great professors yeah. and then, you know, 60 or 70 bad ones. <laughs> um, and that was certainly my experience, both in, as an undergraduate at a funky little hippie school in Ohio and at Columbia university in graduate school. Uh, it was really similar. It's amazing. Right. Um, so, but here's what here, I had this recurring fantasy. So first of all, my, when I was at Antioch, I would sit in these classes and I would spend a lot of time imagining or thinking about how I would teach that class differently. Yeah. I'd spent, I, I realized that later, I spent an incredible amount of time during those classes thinking about how I would teach this differently, which I, is a good I, sign. I that. had the same experience as I did. Well, except I usually spent my time thinking about how I would structure the entire university differently. Yeah. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, all the time, all the time. So I had that fantasy too. And my, my recur the recurring fantasy for me was great debates. I wanted it to all be structured around great debates because I knew there had been great debates, you know, historically, but it's like, it, I felt like we weren't ever doing that. You know, it was, first of all, it was completely dominated by leftists, right? So there wasn't, they weren't really committed to presenting alternative viewpoints. Um, but I was, I was really into philosophy. That's what I started out studying and got really turned on by that. And, you know, I, I saw it as a history of debates, you know, around big ideas. Yeah. Right. Um, and I thought, God damn it, if we could just get, you know, Nietzsche and Plato in the same classroom and have them fight it out for two hours, that would be awesome. But, you know, we could simulate, we could simulate that. And in Renegade University, I will simulate that as a matter of fact, you know, I will have Nietzscheans debate Platonists seriously, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and on and on, you know, uh, I will have uh, a Marxist debate a Lockean. God damn it. You know, that's what I wanted in yep. college. And I never really got it. I mean, head to head, you know, head yeah. to head. I would be remiss if I did not remind any of our young listeners or the parents who have children who are younger. And by younger... I mean, a few years younger than me, 14 to 26 age range to check out a summer seminar put on by the Foundation for Economic Education, one of the sponsors of this podcast, FEE.org, the Foundation for Economic Education is amazing. You will meet with some amazing young people, hear from amazing professors, thinkers, experts, entrepreneurs in engaging talks about the ideas of freedom. You can see one of the talks that I gave at Fee if you want to go to 
my website and simply search isaacmorehouse.com and search for how to change the world. Or you can go to YouTube and search for people over politics. That's the title of a talk I gave at Fee. It was recorded. It'll give you a flavor. It's about 30 minutes long of what the experience is like, what some of the talks are like. Now, there are certainly lecturers, speakers, uh, activity leaders who are better than I am there, but that will give you a flavor. I love participating in these events. The energy is amazing, and the amount of learning that happens, the light bulb moments, the excitement is palpable. It's unbeatable. FEE.org slash seminars. Fill out an application. Tell them you heard about it on the Isaac Morehouse podcast. It's amazing how you've got all these minds here at this institution who are interested in engaging ideas. You, you sort of, you have all the, the pieces there. I mean, in some places you may not have uh, enough representing one view or the other, but there's just something about the the way that it's structured, the incentives that it's so rare. I remember, I mean, I had I had one or two classes, probably two, that I actually remember and that were actually really positive experiences. And one was a business class with a guy who was a who was an entrepreneur and he just taught it on the side for fun. But the other one was a philosophy class. And it was taught by the TA because the professor was sick much of the time. And uh, this TA uh, later, he I found out recently he's he's out of academia and he's doing like a podcast on his own now because his oh. his ideas were too radical. Um, wow. But he was at the time he was very unabashed when we started. He was he was you know said uh, I'm a I'm an atheist blah 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 and okay let's. He's like, let's see a show of hands. I'm not going to pick anybody. Like, who's an atheist? Who's an agnostic? Who's a theist? And at the time, I was the only theist in the class. And then so he he started making a, a couple arguments and all the kids were sort of sort of going along with, oh, okay, I can see this is like one of those philosophy classes where you sort of poke fun at, at theism or whatever. And he goes immediately, he would always do this. He would go, wait, 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 when he'd ask a question. I want to hear what the theist thinks first. And then he would, and then he would put all of them. He'd be like, "All of you think that there, there's a, there's no good argument from a, a theist on this, uh, but I want the theist to make it first, and I want you to debunk him." And he would like put them on the spot, and he'd be like, "You know," and I knew I, if I brought my A game, I'd make it really hard. And most of those kids, even if my argument wasn't very good, most of them just didn't have one. They just thought, "Yeah, it's one of those classes where you just sort of poke fun at the, you know, wow. just go along with it." And it was really, really fun. I had we actually had some good camaraderie, and um, but I thought, man. Why has that only happened once in yeah. four years? You know, so I had, so I had a similar experience at Antioch. Actually, I had I actually had two good professors. Um, the second one was he was a total leftist, but he just he wouldn't let us make weak arguments. So I was a hardcore socialist, and um, I remember in one class we started talking about socialism. I started defending it, and he got up and went to the chalkboard and drew a picture of a house. And he said, okay, here's my house, Thaddeus. But you know what? It's not big enough for me. I want to build an addition to my house. Am I allowed to build an addition to my house under socialism? <laughs> and I said, well, only if it doesn't exploit the rest of us. <laughs> and then he said, I said, well, okay, well, I want to actually, I built an addition, but it's not big enough. I want to build it a little bit bigger. Can I, am I allowed to do that under socialism? <laughs> and it really shook me yeah. intellectually. Like, and I, I, like that, I think he kind of planted the seed of my anti-socialism, which flowered many years later. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, that was, as you said, that was like the only time that ever happened.
So that was the yeah. No, no. So so when you so then you went on into um, you know to get your PhD and in in that process is there something about the process of getting the PhD and 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 then going and trying to get your first your first job is there something about the process that you think sort of tends to make academics get more bland or have more uniformity in their beliefs or is it a self-selection process the ones who go there just tend to be all one way anyway or i don't know G- give me your take as as going through it yeah it's simple it's a priesthood <laughs> really um i was actually another book idea i had was one that was going to be called the last monastery about academia because <laughs> um, that's what it is it really is first of all the modern university, you know, is based on medieval universities, which were uh, cartels or guilds. Uh, they were monopolies, intellectual monopolies that were protected by the state and the church. And they operated very much like seminaries. And that was really their function in the society. And that's that's the model yeah. we still have. It was a Yale, Yale Divinity School. I mean, most of yeah. these started as, yeah. Yeah, so now, now the priesthood... Um, Will admit who? Will they admit atheists? Of course not, <laughs> right? <laughs> will they admit uh, uh, you know Muslim clerics? No, of course not. They will admit you know fellow priests, fellow true believers. So now the true belief, the paradigm can shift over time, which it has done in the modern university. You know, it's shifted some from sort of conservatives to liberal, basically. Um, but in each moment, the priesthood at that time will protect. The, the the belief system so that's that you know that's what they're there for and yeah. it's well i know this because i used to be one of them and that was my mission you know i remember i my application to columbia graduate school in history was all about that it was like i'm going to teach the history of the people uh, the workers history and women's history and black people's history and i'm going to spread i forget exactly how i put it but, you know basically it's like i'm going to I'm going to spread the word of the new social history. Um, that's what my mission was. And so I got admitted. <laughs> so, and I, well, I've also heard many, many, many very prominent um, academics admit this. You know, they've, they've said, yeah, oh, my mission is to indoctrinate my students. Of course, of course it is. Of course it is. I mean, that's why they're there. They want to spread their ideas. They don't want to challenge their ideas or have their ideas challenged, they want to spread their ideas. Of course, that's why they're there. It's the only platform they have in this society. You know, um, it's so. interesting. There's There seems to be, it's, it's really common now. And again, 10 years ago, this wasn't very common. Um, it's really common to hear broad criticism of academia uh, all over the place. And you kind of have three sort of three aggrieved parties, so to speak, three groups that are that are critical for different reasons. And I don't know that any of them in most cases are really critical for the right reasons, but one is kind of the the macro criticism or the one that would come from, say, employers or people who just watch the economy as a whole. And they would say, all these, all these graduates don't have the skills that they need. And that uh, there's something to that that might be right. There's also a very technocratic sort of controlling bent to that at times. It yeah. can be like, you know, kids, they should learn this instead of this, you know, that I, I want them to be widgets that can plug in here, which I, I don't think is a good critique. Um, right. Then there's the, the sort of aggrieved the students. And again, they have part of their critique is good. I've spent all this time and money. Now I can't have, a, I can't get a job and now I'm in debt. And 
there's something to the fact that they've basically been told from their from their you know elementary school that all you need to do is go to college and life will be taken care of it'll be worth it look here's this lifetime earnings chart so they they kind of have been lied to but on the other hand just sort of like more college uh, having it be free having someone else pay for it I don't really think that quite gets at it and then the third aggrieved party which is a newer one and I want you to tell me how much of a trend this actually is is academics themselves. People yeah. within higher education seem to be, there seems to be a growing chorus of frustration. Um, you mentioned on Facebook that you've had a lot of .edu email addresses yeah. on your signup for uh, Renegade University. What do you think is, is there a, a growing chorus of, of professors who are frustrated with the system and looking for something else? Well, first of all, there's the army of adjunct labor um, we have, they're all frustrated. Oh, that, <laughs> okay. Probably... Because there's fewer tenure track positions and they're getting these adjunct positions. So every job I've applied for in modern U S history has had about 500 applicants. Jeez. Um, that's, that's standard. Uh, that's pretty standard across the humanities and social sciences. I don't know what the sciences are, but I, I know they're bad too. Um, so I, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there are more adjuncts, people without tenure track positions, than there are people with tenure track positions at this point. Mm. I know that in my college at Occidental College, 45% of the classes currently are taught by adjuncts. Do, do people know this when they're going to join a PhD <laughs> that, program? Oh, it's, it's cr- astonishing. It's, yeah. it's crazy. Do, do people know, do you get like, are you told the statistics when you apply for pre PhD program? Hey, every year there's X number of PhDs on the job market and only 10% of them get a job. Or is that, is that a surprise? Well, I mean, so when I was in graduate school, that was the nineties, um, which was, it was bad then it's worse now, but it was certainly bad then. It wasn't really, I wouldn't say it was like announced to us. I mean, you know, there was some discussion of it, but it wasn't, it like, wasn't. Did, like, a, did you know that you were kind of taking a gamble that you might not get a, a... um, I thought that I would get a job. Okay. I wasn't sure that I would get a great job and that actually could have been true. You know, I have to say, I, I've never, I, I said at the beginning, I am not going to work in Oklahoma. Sorry. I'm not going to take a job at Oklahoma. Well, well, that's the thing most faculty member will say when they're on the job market. Like I just have to move wherever it might be in the middle of, you know, God knows Some where them, a lot of them, a lot of them do that, but I was not willing to do that. I had, I was a snob and I had to live on at least one of the coasts, <laughs> big city on a coast. Um, so I never even applied to a lot of the jobs out there. Um, but, um, so I, you know, I, maybe I could have gotten a job somewhere, but I, I'm glad I didn't, you know, <laughs> God, I mean, that's, that's not the life I wanted. Um, so, and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if I, if that had happened to me, if I'd gotten tenure at, you know, Ohio Wesleyan or something, I wouldn't be doing this and I'm really glad I'm doing this. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, it was talked about, I don't know what goes on now in graduate schools. I, it would be criminal if they didn't say this to them when they, when they were admitted, because it is, it is truly grim now. And then on top of that, you know, you have these diversity pressures, um, which are incredible for, you know, it's really hard for white men in particular to get jobs, um, especially in certain fields. You know, every school is just dying for black and brown faces. And yeah, it's really. (laughs) So, so there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's been recent protests and things like this on different campuses and I I haven't gotten too in the weeds on any of this stuff, but I've seen, I don't know if it's, you know, if it was just more, more reporting than normal, but it certainly seemed like a kind of a rash of four or five, six universities having these big student protests, usually around sort of racial issues or diversity issues. 
what's the good, the bad, and the ugly here? Is this is this a good sign that students are fed up with a bunch of bullcrap at universities? Is this a bad sign that students are uh, increasingly babied and entitled and their feelings get hurt too easily? Or or is this is this a fake thing that's put on by faculty and the students don't really care? What, what's your take? <laughs> so um, first of all, it was at dozens of universities. Um, okay, okay. So I, I always want to be cautious because if I just see blurbs and they, they talk, they, things can get it sensationalized. Oh. And so I didn't look into you, it myself, but that's... You can go... Um, DeRay Mackison, who's a big Black Lives Matter activist, He's he actually put together a website and it's called the demand. I think it's called the demands or the demands. Okay. I've heard of this. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Which is a list of all the schools with all the demands made by students at the schools. Um, and you know, <laughs> a hefty percent, hefty portion of those demands are absolutely ridiculous, authoritarian, totalitarian, uh, assault on free speech, assault on academic freedom <laughs> and the rest <laughs> of it. Um, so, you know, that's everyone's well, not everyone's, but many people's first impression. It was my first impression was, oh, my God, this is just straight up Maoism. And it's also based on basically spectral evidence of racism, you know, stuff that may or may not have happened or did happen, but wasn't racism. You know, like asking, where are you from? That's a microaggression. Um, <laughs> no, I'm serious. It's been counted officially as a microaggression by the University of California. So, um, wow. Yeah. Uh, so. What is it? Okay. <laughs> um, for me, it's rooted in racial liberalism. This is to me, and I don't want to speak for anyone. So I'm very, I'm very careful about this. You know, I don't want to speak for black students. I've never been a black student. I've never been a black person, but <clears throat> I do know this, that they are, op that they are operating within a particular, a very particular racial regime, which is dominated, uh, American campuses since the 1960s, which I call racial liberalism, right? Which is different than <clears throat> the old, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a break from, you know, scientific racism. This was, this is the regime in which um, black people are invited to and expected to assimilate into the dominant culture. And so that's why they've been given scholarships. That's why we have affirmative action. Um, they get brought into these colleges and universities uh, to do two things, to assimilate into the dominant culture and to, quote, enrich the experience of the white students who are there. Um, <laughs> so they have this function, this dual function as students, right? It's not just they get to go to a college and do whatever they want. They are there for a particular reason or set of reasons, which have everything to do with race, racial politics. So they get treated differently. Um, first of all, they are isolated in most of these schools. You know, they're the one or two black kids in a class full of white kids, right? That alone is going to make anyone crazy after a while. They are expected either explicitly or implicitly to represent their race in classroom discussions. That's why they're there. John McWhorter um, uh, is a very smart sort of conservative black uh, academic at Columbia, he's made this point repeatedly. That's why they're there. That's what has been said by universities and colleges, you know, to enrich the experience of the white students. Well, welcome you know? to the class. Now enrich the experience of the rest of us, please. <laughs> I mean, if that's not going to make you crazy, right, I don't know what would. Um, 
And, you know, they are splashed all over the cover of the, the university guidebook to make it look like the college is, you know, 50% black when it's actually 7% black. <laughs> There's just one dishonesty after another after another. Um, yeah, if you're, if you're like the one black guy or black girl on a small liberal arts campus, you know oh, you're going to be in every fundraising flyer that ever gets made. You will be famous. <laughs> you will be famous. Yeah. Um, so... Oh, and then, then there's just this, and this really just makes me sick, sometimes literally <laughs> sick to my stomach. I mean, there's just incredible patronizing that goes on of black students and black faculty by whites at these schools. I've, I see it all the time. What, what so kind of they form? Never get, they never get challenged. What does that usually take? They, well, so they'll never get challenged. Okay. You know, they'll, they'll say whatever they say is sort of uncritically accepted. Um, they get basically patted on the head for everything they say. Um, they get treated like children. Um, black faculty, <laughs> this is happening in my school at, at Occidental right now. It's just disgusting. It's like, you know, there's only like a handful of black faculty generally. There's certainly, it's true at Occidental, but, but you're supposed to have black faculty on every single committee, right? <laughs> to be politically correct. And so what happens? They get asked to be on every single committee, right? So these people are constantly being asked to represent their race, you know, um, I just, how could that not <laughs> create tremendous resentment among yeah. people? Yeah. Um, you know, and then, yeah, I mean, the, the black students tend to be treated like, frankly, pets, you know, I mean, they're, they're there, they're, they're coddled, they're not challenged. Um, they're put up there as, you know, these token, their tokenism is rampant. Um, they're there to, to make everyone feel better about their white guilt um, and to, to assimilate, you know? So, so do, you th do you think this is a big, these protests, sort of this, this, many of these things, the seeds being in place, as you described, has come to a head. Is this, is this a big cultural moment? You think this is going to create some kind of a long-term shift? Well, I just wanted to say before I yeah, go there, but, um, um, so the, 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 the weird thing, the difficult thing to understand is how, these grievances have been expressed specifically, especially lately. So you do hear complaints in these protests about tokenism, about some, you know, paternalism to some extent. There's a little of that, you know, representing the race. You do hear a lot about that. Um, but mostly the complaints are about things that don't exist. They just don't exist. I mean, so they talk about being physically unsafe on these campuses when in fact these campuses are the safest places in the world. Uh, for black people or for anyone, um, you know, they talk about basically white supremacist, segregationist, racists, you know, on campus. I'm sure they're there somewhere, but my God, they are deep underground if they are. Um, and there is absolutely no explicit statements of those ideas, you know, unless, well, if there, and if there ever is, those people get expelled immediately. Yeah. You know, there's no, come on. I mean, this is, it's all liberals. It's all racial liberals. Um, so it's, so there's like, I don't, you know, again, I don't want to say to anyone, oh, you're really complaining about something else, but it sure looks that way to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, a, it's almost like there's this, there's this feeling of frustration and when it comes time to sort of give it voice, I don't know, there's just, it just seems like the the lines that are, I don't know if they're being fed or, or the lines that are readily available 
like you said, they just, they don't seem to be things that are really real big problems, but there are real problems. Oh, They're yeah. just not I've, finding their way into the, into the narrative somehow. Since 1984, I have said, you know, it must suck or it must be difficult, not suck, but it must be difficult to be a black student on one of these campuses. Absolutely. No question about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, right. I think that they have access to these narratives that have much more resonance in the culture, right? So they connect themselves, their experiences to the civil rights movement or to the anti-apartheid movement or to slavery or to Jim Crow, right? And so, and that has tremendous resonance, mm. but it's difficult, I think it's difficult to talk about, you know, racial paternalism uh, or tokenism, uh, you know? So I, I don't know, but but I do know that much of what they talk about simply does not happen. I mean, it's just, it's, a, it's, it's, it's just patently absurd to say you're physically unsafe at a, at a, at Occidental college or at Yale. <laughs> Who's saying the most interesting stuff on this or has the most interesting <clears throat> take you mentioned, uh, is it John McWhorter? Yeah, by far everyone should listen to the series that Glenn Lowry has done on okay. blogging heads with John McWhorter. They've had a series of conversations at least six or seven on this topic over the last several months. Um, I don't agree with everything those guys say. They're definitely more conservative than, than I am on some things, but they are astonishingly honest about mm -hmm. what goes on on college campuses. Um, they're both black, both black academics at elite schools. And they, you know, they say a lot of what I've been saying. Um, but they, they cut right to the chase and everyone should look at that. Do you, do you think there will be a, will this be a, um, sort of a, a boon for let's say historically oh. black colleges yes. or other alternative, uh, you know, ways yes. of, of accessing higher education? <clears throat> yes. We've already seen evidence. I've seen, um, HBCUs already say this, that they're getting a, a rush of applicants, <laughs> from schools, from these schools where these, where these protests are happening. And I think that's going to happen. I think HBCUs are going to be the great beneficiaries of this, which I think is a great thing, by the way. I think HBCUs are wonderful. I'm all for them. Um, you know, it's, they've produced, you know, vast majority, for instance, of the black doctors in the United States come from HBCUs. Martin Luther King went to Morehouse. Spike Lee went to Morehouse. I, I have several, several friends who, went to Morehouse, Howard, or Spellman, who are now professors or fil documentary filmmakers or entrepreneurs or public intellectuals. Um, you know, they produce with, and by the way, they're underfunded, you know, since that's one of the, they're one of the victims of integration. You know, they've had to, now since then they've had to compete with Harvard and Yale and the rest of them. Hmm. So they're underfunded compared to the other elite schools, but they produce tremendous alumni. Um, so I think that's going to be great. I, uh, I know more about Morehouse College than probably any other small school be because I've had so many people through my life when they meet me say, oh, I thought you'd be a black guy because your name is Isaac Morehouse. You know, like, yeah. I don't know, <laughs> Isaac, the bartender from the Love Boat or something, Morehouse oh, right. College, who, <laughs> who knows? Um, yeah. So when it comes to, you know, your sort of desire to uh, move beyond being being you know, I don't want to say chained, but we'll say it chained only to academia, sure. being able to launch Renegade University, et cetera. What do you say to someone who says, but Thaddeus, the universities, they need people like you to, to reform them from within <laughs> to help make, <laughs> what's your response? <laughs> I just gave my response. Uh, God. 
that's how I feel about uh, getting involved in politics. So, so my politics is anti-responsibility, first of all. (laughs) So, I mean, I, not, that is not my responsibility. I did not create those things. I, it's not my, it's not my business. Sorry. I mean, I'd much rather reform them from without. And I think most, you know, historically, most of the great change has come from without actually, you know, pressures from outside. By the way, I was going to tell you, did you, did you see this thing about the MIT Dean? who is leaving her job to form a, an independent research university that will have a Somebody sent me a link. Map. I didn't read it. Yeah. That's, check it out. That's yeah. amazing. She's it's happening. It's happening. There's more and more of us. Um, I think the MOOCs were just a beginning yeah. and all they did was sort of demonstrate that there's a market for this, but I think you're going to see more and more academics leave and do what I'm doing. Yes. Um, well, this is what so, we talk about with Praxis a lot is that I think in the first wave of changes to higher education, It was all the innovations were based on the assumption that what higher education is, is a product people purchase to obtain information. And that's really not what they're purchasing. So there's all these innovation. Okay, now here's a new way to convey just raw information via videos and whatever else. And that's part of it. But really, it's this whole bundle that includes things like the social setting, the the network you build, the interactivity, but also primarily the signal to employers that says you should hire me. And that's where I think the real breakthrough is building those alternate signals. And then what, what that will do, I think things like renegade university will be so much higher quality because Mm -hmm. it's not attached to a signal that will supposedly get you a job. I think the the credential is sort of killed the classroom because when you go in a classroom, the the kids don't want to be there and and they're happy when class is canceled because class is a cost. So they must endure in order to get the ticket to a job. And once you separate those and say, okay, demonstrate your worthiness to employers by some other means, come up with some other signal that, that indicates your value as an employee. But in terms of your pursuit of knowledge, you know, this is why if you go to a a seminar uh, that's put on by a nonprofit that doesn't offer college credit, the the quality of the discourse is so much higher because you're self-selecting people who are not there to, to get a resume booster so much as to engage the idea. So I think this is going to be a really, really great um, evolution that happens. And, and people who just want the ideas and are not looking at it as a magical ticket to job security, it's going to create much higher quality interaction for things like what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, it has to do with the the respect accorded to the person teaching the course, right? So if it's taught by a public intellectual who's well-respected, and it's on your resume that you took this class with X person who is a well-respected public intellectual, why wouldn't an employer look at that kindly, right? Why wouldn't they think that that is a real credential, right? That that's important to them. And particularly if it's something that was not, you know, sort of required of you, you, you went and did this of your own initiative, you know? Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, and also if it's accompanied by, you know, a quote, a blurb from that guy, you know, if it says Thaddeus Russell says, so Isaac Morehouse was a wonderful student who wrote this fabulous paper for me and was so brilliant in so many ways. Isn't that going to count more than just a BA from Penn? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah. It's, it's um, the, the world is just starting to crack into this, these, these sort of alternative, I just call them alternative signaling mechanisms for ways yeah, to exactly. say that this is how you can this is how you can verify that I'm worth something, that I'm capable of doing something. And I mean, Google alone has already changed. Like Google is your new resume, right? If I Google your name, that's going to mean a lot to me. Um, that's going to, that's going to tell me a lot if you can leave a sort of digital paper trail, et cetera. So, uh, this is, this is really exciting stuff. Now, are you, are you scared? Are you worried about 
sort of getting pushback from academia? Oh, I'm not worried about that. <laughs> Maybe I should be. I don't <laughs> They're going to send out the drones. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I mean, academia has basically just ignored me since I since I came out with Renegade History six years ago. I mean, there's just mm. there's just been no response at all, really, from academia. Um, so it's more it's more just the typical sort of entrepreneurial fears, like what if this doesn't work? So far, yeah, yeah. Um, it's normal. I mean, I. <laughs> I think it will work. I just don't know how well it will work. I don't know how big it will be. I want it to become a movement. You yeah. know? I want it to, I want it to end up, you know, hiring some of those adjunct brilliant professors who can't get yeah. jobs. Absolutely. Um, and changing the whole goddamn system. So, oh. I, I think it's going to happen. I think I think that higher education in my lifetime will be revolutionized and I do think what I'm doing will be part of it. I, I absolutely agree. I have this sort of analogy in my mind that um you know, there's, there's this wave that's coming and we're not sure exactly when it's going to come. You're seeing little bits of it here and there that, you know, just when I look at people who apply to Praxis, for example, you know, little by little, there's this growth and there's increasing number of people's and you can look by age. Kids who are in high school now are so much less likely to say, yes, I'm absolutely going to college and I wouldn't consider any alternative than kids who are, you know, 20, 22. There's, there's kind of, there, something's happening. They're seeing all the people with the debt and, you know, not knowing what to do and sort of aimlessly going to grad school to, to take more, <laughs> take on more debt. So I'm with you. It's, it's going to happen. And, uh, hopefully, uh, people like you and I can, can be on the front edge of that and help that help speed up the process. I think so. I think so. Thaddeus, this was awesome. Uh, you can go to it's ThaddeusRussell.com to, to sign up for updates on, uh, the launch of Renegade University. Yes. Okay, ThaddeusRussell.com. Check it out. Um, we will also be on the lookout for your new book. Maybe it's a year from now. Maybe it's six months. But regardless, uh, I'd love to, to bring you back on at a later date to uh, discuss that and everything else that you're up to. That'd be great. Keep breaking Thanks the so rules. Much. Yep. All right, man. Thank See you. Ya.